Take out your Bibles, please, and open them to the second chapter of Ephesians. I have the great privilege of preaching through Ephesians at Liberty Baptist, and uh, so I just chose a sermon that I've preached recently uh, that the Lord has really used to encourage and bless my own heart, and I wanted to preach that uh, message to you this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to read uh, verses 1 through 7. The, the theme that we've chosen to articulate the entire book of Ephesians is life in Christ. The first three chapters of Ephesians, as you know, are incredibly glorious doctrinal truths that teach us of what, what it means to be in Christ. And then the last three chapters in the book of Ephesians are, are books that teach us what it is to live in light of these truths. So we've simply used the phrase life in Christ as a catch-all for the book of Ephesians, uh, an overarching title for the entirety of the, of the book. Ephesians chapter 2, follow along with me. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. These are very familiar verses to many of you. Paul is writing, God is having Paul write to believers at the church of Ephesus, and he says to them, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were following the course of this world. You were following the prince of the power of the air. That's, that's Satan. The spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, Paul himself included, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, by our very nature, we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. These next two words are my favorite two words in the Bible. But God. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray one more time. Father, by the Spirit, please use your word to encourage and challenge and motivate us this morning. Make us more like your Son. King Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. Have you ever heard someone uh, tell a story? Maybe you heard it on the radio, you watched it on television, and, and they tell a story of how they died and then they came back to life, right? You, you hear a story like that, and, and if you're like me, immediately cynicism kicks in. I think, no way. I mean, this, and you hear those stories on the radio at like two in the morning, right? You find some obscure radio station and the guy's talking about he saw aliens and this sort of thing. Or, you know, there's some sensational new book that's out or some sensational television program that's on. And, and you listen and you think, you know, this makes great entertainment, but this is crazy. There's no way this really happened. What's your response to a story like that? Most of us don't believe it. And rightfully so. But... For those in this room who know Christ as their Savior, you actually have a true testimony of this happening to you that's, that's actually more real, more significant, more wonderful than any physical death, back-to-physical-life story that's ever been told. 
you actually have the story, the true story of having been born dead and then been born again to life. The title of the sermon this morning is From Death to Life. Pretty simple. As you all know, those of you who heard me preach before, uh, we're not going to get very complicated here. From death to life. And my main point is this. We all start life dead. Wait a second. You're, you're born, and you're born alive, right? Well, yes, that's true. Physically, you're born alive. But spiritually, God's Word says that we're born dead. We all start life dead, but Christ can. Christ can make our lives alive. Christ can take someone who's physically alive and make that person spiritually alive. I think you have a handout there in your, uh, in your bulletin this morning. If you want to follow along and take notes, I'll be uh, keeping, keeping track right along with that. We all start life dead, but Christ can make our lives alive. Main point number one, by nature, by nature we are dead. Look again in verse 1. Letter A there, dead in sin. Verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Those trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked. Those trespasses and sins made every single one of us in here dead from the beginning. There are some, there are some really nice people in this room. Some of the nicest people I know on the planet are in this room. And yet, all of you were born spiritually a trespasser and a sinner. You have a nursery that is cram-packed full with kids, right? I, I think David told me that uh, last Sunday between the age, uh, from the ages of 12 and under, there were 140 children in the nursery and children's program here. That, that's, that's more than in my church, like, like everybody in my church, um, that's, that's awesome. And those cute little kids that are over there cooing and other things, uh, they, they are, um, they're born trespassers and sinners. One Bible scholar says this, the most vital part of man's personality, the most important part, the most vital part of man's personality, the spirit is dead to the most important factor in life. Your spirit is dead to the most important factor in life. What's the most important factor in life? God. There is a God, and spiritually we are born dead. We are, we are like zombies. Apparently there is a resurgence in interest in zombies. I'm a novice when it comes to zombies, and I kind of intend to stay that way. Um, uh, but apparently zombies are, are interesting creatures. Uh, they are dead, but they're living. That's actually a somewhat helpful illustration for us spiritually B.C., before Christ. Before Christ, we're alive, but we're dead. We're physically alive, but spiritually our hearts are darkened, our eyes are blinded, and we're dead. All have sinned, Romans says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We sin against God. Listen to this list. We love other things more than God. We have stuff in our lives, things, possessions that we worship. We love them more than we love God. We take God's name in vain. We use God's name without thinking about it. We say things like, oh my God. 
we don't consider Sunday or the day of worship to be any different than any other day of the week. We disobey and dishonor our parents. We hate other people. We're immoral in our hearts and we lust after the opposite sex. We take things that aren't ours. We lie and we gossip. We desperately want things that other people have and we're unhappy without them. And this list, that's just the Ten Commandments. Those are just the Ten Commandments that God gave His people in the Old Testament. And that list, just that list, condemns us point by point by point. We are sinners. This sinfulness brings from birth spiritual death. We're not sick. We're not dying. We're not just weak. We're dead. Some people use the illustration um, like that you're a, you're a person out at sea drowning and you're saved when someone throws the, the life preserver to you and you cling on. And that is not a good illustration of what it means to be taken from death into life. See, see the illustration would be better like this, that you're, you're on the bottom of the ocean for a few weeks, dead. And the great master, the great king, plunges his arm down and picks you up off the bottom of the ocean and breathes life into one who was completely dead is now made alive. We're going to talk about more about that in a second. And, and when we remember the truths like this, brothers and sisters, let truths like this inform the way you think and the way you live, right? When we, when we witness to other people, sometimes we, we're tempted to think, if I can just present the gospel perfectly, they'll get saved, right? Because obviously, I mean, if they, if they just understand the truth of the gospel, and if I can make it clear and give one good illustration and then a punchline and then drum roll, I know they'll get saved. And yet, maybe you've had an experience like I've had recently where I share the gospel with someone and they look at me, and they say, no, no, I, I, don't, I don't want to do that because I know that saying yes to Jesus means I would have to give up my addiction to alcohol, and I don't think I'm ready to do that. And I think, well, wait a second, I, I'm tempted to think, I didn't, I didn't communicate right. Uh, obviously, he didn't understand the gospel. So I shared again, and he says, no, no, I don't want to do that. He's dead in his sins. Letter B, not only are we dead in our sins, we're dedicated to Satan. This, this is not politically correct truth to share. Uh, this, this is uh, hum, humbling and embarrassing almost. Look in verse 2. In which you once walked, those trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Dr. MacArthur says that not all unsaved people are necessarily indwelt at all times by Satan or are demon-possessed, but knowingly or unknowingly, they are subject to Satan's influence. Before Christ, you are under the power of Satan. There's, there's a lot of ramifications to that truth. Right, So you have a young child that lives in your home, and if they're not converted yet, they might have really good parents and really good siblings, and, and they have all the right environment around them, and yet the Bible describes them as being under the control. They follow the wicked one, the evil one. 
so we shouldn't wonder sometimes, man, how could my child have done that? This answers for us the question, what's wrong with our world? Why are, why are some bad people so bad? Or even those that aren't you know, that bad. They're, they're walking according to the prince of the power of the air. They're, they're actually sons, not of God. They're sons of disobedience. There's a world system that's energized by Satan and at odds with God and his word. There's a world system that's promoting its own agenda. And if, and if you have eyes to see, it's obvious. Turn on the radio, turn on the television, turn on the internet, listen to any politician, and you hear, almost any politician, I better qualify that, and you hear the voice of one who is walking, following the course of this world. Someone who is a son of disobedience. Now, you and I both, we know really, really nice people who are unbelievers, there's someone I'm thinking of in, in our town of Dalhart, and I've gotten to know him. I've had lunch with him a couple different times, and we've discussed the truths of the gospel, and he completely disagrees with me. And he is one of the nicest people I've ever met. He's also a really good hunter. And so, like, I'm trying to think, come on, man, this guy's got to get saved because I want to go hunting with him. And yet, as nice as this guy is, God's word describes him as a son of disobedience. Humanism, evolution, abortion, sexual immorality, disrespect, and disobedience, all of these are seen as things that are okay by a world that walks as sons of disobedience. It doesn't mean that they're always as bad as they possibly can be. Right? Think about this. An enemy soldier, which the Bible describes us as enemies, and we'll get to that in just a minute. An enemy soldier is probably very nice to his wife and his kids, and he does good things for his family and his community, but he's still an enemy. And the Bible describes those who don't know Christ as enemies. So be aware. Be aware that this is how God describes those who are before Christ. Before verse 4, which we're coming to. Letter C. It's kind of strong language for a sermon. But this is the most appropriate use of words like this. Letter C. Before Christ... By nature, we're damned by the sovereign. Look at verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, and here's the phrase where I'm getting damned by the sovereign, we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now, I, I, know, I know I've used a strong word there, damned. The, da- the word damn has very legitimate way to be used. But God's the only one who can actually do it. When people curse and they say, damn you or damn this, and they they use a word like that, they can't actually bring damnation onto something or someone. God is the only one who can do that. And the incredibly sobering reality is that God is doing that and is going to continue doing that. See, children of wrath are children who are under not my wrath, not your wrath, not just some kind of subjective idea of wrath, but they're under the wrath of God. See, what we need to be saved from isn't primarily our sins. What we need to be saved from is the wrath of God. 
We do need to be saved and from the wrath of God. And where will an unbelieving person spend all of eternity experiencing the wrath of God? They'll, they'll spend all of eternity in hell experiencing the wrath of God. And I think sometimes we're tempted to think, well, hell is where Satan is, and so obviously Satan's the one who made hell. Satan, it, sa- hell is Satan's invention to kind of get the people that God should have gotten. But we just know that theologically that's not true. Hell is actually a place that was made by God for God to send his enemies. And so children of wrath are those who don't know Christ as their Savior, and they receive the outpouring of the wrath of God and are sent to hell to be separated from God for all eternity. This is as sobering a truth that the Scripture contains. We went about living according, this passage says, according to the passion of our flesh, doing what our body and mind want, just like the rest of mankind. With no thought for Christ as my King, for Jesus as my Lord, living the way I want to. Ephesians 2 verse 2 says, refer to, and, and actually chapter 5 verse 6 refer to us as sons of disobedience. We know the ultimate consequence of being this son of disobedience is to become a child of wrath. John 3, 18 says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. You know the rest of the verse, but whoever does, and whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. Look back up in verse, well, right here in verse 3. And we're by nature children of wrath. By nature. That was, that was our point number one. By nature, we are dead. So, before you're saved by God, you are a child of wrath. It's your nature to be a son of disobedience. A dog barks, right? Why does a dog bark? A dog barks because it's his nature to bark, right? Dogs don't meow. Dogs don't fly through the air. Cats meow. And birds fly through the air, and and each of these critters do what they do because it's their nature. It's it's their nature to do so. And I think think sometimes we think, well, man's nature is basically neutral. And if you can just present him with the truth of the Scripture, because he's basically okay, he's neutral, he'll he'll choose good, he'll choose Christ. But that's not the picture that the Bible gives us of who we were. The Bible says that by your very nature, you were dead, you were walking according to the power of the prince of the air, and you were um, damned by the sovereign. Now look in verse 4, my favorite two words in the Bible. But God. That, that is unimaginably significant, that in verse 4, God steps into the picture right? We weren't trying to climb a ladder. We weren't trying to figure out our problem. We weren't trying to get undead. It wasn't like there was a zombie walking around thinking, boy, I sure would like to have a fresh start. Boy, I sure would like to turn my life around. No, you were dead. You were at the bottom of the ocean for weeks and months, and you had no hope of rescuing yourself. But God, but God steps in. This is, this is like the story of Lazarus. He's, he's dead, dead. For days dead, stinky dead, and he's not in there thinking, okay, I think I'm ready to get undead. No, no, God comes along 
and calls out to Lazarus, come forth, come out, Lazarus. That's what God's done for every single one of us in here who know Christ is our Savior. We were dead, but God steps in and saves the day. Point number two, by grace, we are saved. Point number one was by nature, we are dead. And point number two here, by grace, we are saved. We are, we are rescued from our impossibly horrible situation. We are rescued by God. Letter A, we're passionately spared. We're passionately spared. Verse four, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. We'll get to verse five in a second. Here, a passionate God steps in and spares those who deserve to be damned. You got to remember, you got to remember, you're dead and, and four weeks old at the bottom of the ocean because you deserve to be. That's what you've earned. You've been living a life stacking up sins, stacking up sins, stacking up sins, and rightfully and justly, God is ready to pour his wrath out on you. So, so it's not like you're kind of a, you know, a cute little puppy that deserves to be taken home and loved. No, you're a dead corpse at the bottom of the ocean who deserves to be there. Why on earth would God do this? Verse 4 actually tells us, and, and I, even when I read verse 4, I still don't get it. Like I read verse 4 and I, I still think, he's rich in mercy and has great love for this dead traitor? He does, verse four, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. He is rich in mercy. And when we think of rich, we, we can hardly get away from thinking of it in terms of rich that we know. So we think of people and we think that person's rich. And, and everyone in here, I've said this before in here, we're all, everyone in here is rich, right? Just go to another third world country and they look at all of us and think of us as rich. But when we hear the word rich, we think of other people outside this room and we think, no, that person's really rich. And some people are rich in money and some people are rich in land and some people are rich in talent. But it's not that kind of rich that God is rich in mercy. It's, it's not even comparable to that kind of rich. God is, is infinitely rich. It's, it's not as though he's got a million rich, uh, um, mercy, you know, a million units of mercy. No, God has an inexhaustible resource of mercy. He's that kind of rich. And he has great love for those who deserve great damnation. Love is an incredible motivator for us in life. We do things for others that we would never do for most people, and we do them because of love, right? We jump in front of the car to save a child. We give our last penny to help someone whom we love. God, here's how much he loved. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's how much God loves us. This great love with which he has loved us is how we are passionately spared. We're passionately spared by the mercy of God. Mercy, mercy keeps 
us from getting what we do deserve, right? So I'm a sinner. I've been sinning. I'm dead at the bottom of the ocean. I deserve the wrath of God. And the mercy of God is what keeps us from getting that wrath. It's what keeps us from getting what we rightly deserve. There have been a few times, a, a very few times with my children that I have, uh, they have, they've sinned, they've done wrong, and it's time for them to get a correction. You know what that means. That's code word in our family. Um, it's time to get a correction. No, Daddy, I don't want a correction. Well, yes, you, you go into my room, you're going to get a correction. Um, there have been a very few times where I've said, now, now today, I'm not going to give you a correction. I'm going to give you mercy. You have earned this spanking. You deserve this spanking. But today, I'm going to give you mercy because I want them to understand that what they deserve, they aren't getting, and it's mercy that's keeping them from getting that. I have had my children ask for mercy and not receive it, um, just, just, just so you know. Just so you know that uh, you know, it's, not all, it's not all fun and games. We, we get down to business. God, for those who put faith in his son and turn from their sins, God extends mercy. We, we actually deserve the wrath of God. That's what we've earned is the wrath of God. Letter B, that mercy keeps us from getting what, we're, what we deserve and grace gives us what we desperately need. Letter B, we are powerfully saved. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us, God made us alive together with Christ. We've already been singing this morning of the work of Christ that he's done for us on the cross. And we'll even close with a song called The Glory of the Cross, a perfect ending to this sermon. God has made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. Friends, have you been saved by grace? I assume that most of you have, and I also assume that some of you haven't, that you've not put your faith in Christ and been saved by his grace. Even when we deserved the opposite, his mercy kept us from receiving that, and his grace now has given to us what we could never have earned and what we could never have deserved. Take your Bibles and turn them to Romans chapter 5. This, this is a passage you need to be very familiar with, and you um, probably are. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. And we're going to look through three verses here very quickly. If you were ever in, uh, under the student ministry here while I was here, you probably have these verses marked in your Bible. We talked about them so regularly. We're going to look at Romans chapter 5, and we're going to skip. We're going to go verse 6, 8, and 10. And I want you to listen to how God described you before you were saved. Here's how an unbeliever is described before they're saved. Romans chapter 5, start in verse 6. For while we were still, what's the next word? Weak, right. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for who? Yeah, the ungodly. So in verse 6, we're described in two ways. We're described as what? Weak and ungodly, right. Okay, we're keeping track. Verse 8. So it's bad to be weak, right? But some of us are used to it. Um, and And it's bad to be ungodly. Verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still, what's the next word? Sinners, right? So here's another descriptive word. We're sinners. Verse 8 describes us as sinners. Um, If I'm, well, I'll get to that in a second. Verse 10, for if while we were, what's the next word? Enemies. For For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall, we'll, shall we be saved by his life. There are four words that describe us in those three verses. 
weak, ungodly, sinful, and enemies. Let's, let's say that I'm teaching Sunday school, right? And, uh, and I've got the, a bunch of kids uh, in front of me, and, and, uh, and it's time to give out the, the prize, you know, the quiet seat prize, the good behavior prize, whatever. If there's a kid out there who's, who's weak, I'll give him a prize. That's no problem. If there's someone out there who's ungodly, uh, I'm going to be hesitant to uh, you know, give them a prize. Weak, ungodly, sinful. So here's someone who's been, who's been just misbehaving the entire time, right? Are they going to get the quiet seat prize? Are they going to get any kind of treat, any kind of reward, ice cream, cotton candy? No, no, absolutely not. Um, they're going to have to go get a correction. Um, it, it, but, but the, and those words are significant. Those words are bad, right? I mean, we recognize this person deserves you know, what, what's, what they've got coming to them. But the word that every single time I read it gets my attention because it describes me is the word in verse 10, enemies. That's the word that gets me every time I read it. Because when I think of enemies, I think of bad guys, right? Whoever's fighting against Jason Bourne, that's enemy. He's still the best, by the way, even in Texas. Everybody in Texas is like Jason Bourne. That's how cool it is in Texas. (laughs) Taliban soldiers shooting American soldiers, those are enemies. Enemies are people that have their guns pointed at you, and they would gladly dispose of you. And God describes us as enemies even when we were like that, look in verse 5, we're back in Ephesians now, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, we were, we were dead, we were weak, ungodly, sinful enemies, we were made alive together with Christ. Are you together with Christ? Have you turned from your sins and put faith in the only one who can save you? Jesus Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Jesus Christ comes to you with the gift of salvation that you've not earned, you don't deserve. It's a gracious thing that he gives because of his rich mercy, because of his great love, because of his great grace. He brings this gift of salvation. And like Lazarus, we are called out and given the gift of salvation. Letter C, we are positioned to showcase. Verses 6 and 7. And we were, and Christ has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages he might show the immeasurable, here we are again, you you can't count how much riches Christ has, immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Anyone here have a, a trophy case at their house? I mean, they got you, you got your kids' awards hung up. You got trophies. Come on, raise your hand. Okay, none of your kids are excellent. Um, no one raised their hand. Okay, how many of you have ever seen a trophy case somewhere, right? Okay, yes, we've seen trophy. You go to the local high school. There's probably one around here somewhere. Um, in that trophy case um, are, are trophies that put on display events, Things that have happened in history, and the girls' volleyball team won, and they get a trophy, and the boys' tennis team won, and they get a trophy, and the swimmers, and the wrestlers, and the basketball, and, and they, get, they get these trophies, and, and when you stand uh, in front of that, that trophy case, you can, you can kind of relive Oh, there was that moment in 1989, and this moment in 1973, and well, some of us can't relive that moment, but and there was this moment in you know 2010, and and you you have on display in front of you the the awesome works of your high school, and what's happening here is is Jesus has saved us and ra- God has saved us and raised us up and seated us 
with Christ in the heavenly places. And, and there's, there's so much more. I mean, there's a series of sermons we could preach there. So that in the ages to come, God can put on display for us what Christ has done for us. There will be um, a, a presentation, a showcasing, uh, an awards display ceremony for us to see what Christ has done. Our position in Christ gains us unity and life with Christ now and in the eternal ages that is coming in a way that we can't even fully comprehend and understand. Pastor John Piper says this. I read in the paper recently that Queen Elizabeth is worth about $4 billion. That's, I mean, I think we would all say that's rich, right? Everybody in here, that's rich. Now, if you got a letter in the mail from Queen Elizabeth which said, which said that she had taken an oath by the blood of her son to spend her riches to show you as much kindness as she could for the rest of your life, wouldn't you get excited? I mean, that, that would be cool, right? You wouldn't worry about the electric bill anymore. You wouldn't worry. And her wealth compares to God's like a grain of sand compares to the Sahara Desert. Our minds can't do the comparison between a grain of sand and the Sahara Desert. That's, that's an impossible kind of comparison for our minds to even comprehend. God's riches towards us in Christ Jesus infinitely outshine this kind of wealth. She could only, Queen Elizabeth, could only show you kindness for a few years, maybe 10 years or 30 years. But look what Paul says God intends to do for you, that in the coming ages, that's forever, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness to us in Christ Jesus. This passage, verses 1 through 7, highlight, and in, in one of my favorite passages in the Scripture, highlight for us how bad the bad news was for us and how good the good news is for us. The gospel, we call it the good news, and rightfully so. That's what the word gospel means. It's the good news of salvation. And good news gets really good when you understand how really bad the bad news is. If someone comes and says, Jeremy, I've paid your debt for you. I'm going to get excited uh, only in relation to I understand what debt that is and how big that debt is, right? So let's say I have uh, a tab down at the local candy store and I'm 10 bucks in the hole from buying candy. And, that, and a person comes and says, hey, I, I've taken care of that debt for you. Well, that's good. That's encouraging. Thank you. Thank you for paying that debt. Um, but let's say that I'm, that I'm thousands of dollars in debt and they're getting ready to come and repossess my home and my vehicle and my children and my guns and bows. Then I'm in trouble, right? Then I'm in trouble. I put guns and bows after home and car, don't worry. Um, and, and, and you come and say, Jeremy, I, I've, taken care, I've taken care of that that debt for you. Look, that's really good news. I respond to that differently than I respond to the fact that you took care of my candy bill at the candy store. Receiving good news is all the more good when I understand how bad the bad news was. And so this morning we started with an extended look at how bad the bad news was for us. We were dead. We were enemies. 
We were damned, but God, who is rich in mercy and has great love for us, sent Jesus Christ. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived and didn't. He died the death that we deserved to die but didn't have to so that those who would turn from their sin and put faith in him could be spared from the wrath of God and know this, this, uh, this eternal trophy case display of God in Christ for all eternity. Are there those of you in here this morning who don't know Christ as your Savior? Are you still walking according to the prince and power of the air? Have you turned from your sin and put faith in Christ? If, if that's you this morning, then, then my prayer, as is the prayer of so many in here this morning, is that today would be your day of salvation, that you would turn and put faith in Christ, that you would have a but God moment this morning. For those of us who are believers, I pray that the truths that are contained in this passage would motivate, challenge, convict, encourage, that it would remind us of who we were before Christ and that that would humble us. Someone, someone who walks in pride doesn't understand this passage. That, that this passage would humble us because of verses 1 through 3 and that this passage would make us incredibly happy because of verses 4 through 7. See, when we understand the gospel... We're, both, we're made humble and we're made happy. We, as gospel-believing children of God, should be the humblest people on the planet and the happiest people on the planet. No Eeyores for those who know Christ as their Savior. Right? I think sometimes we think, well, humility means I kind of mope around and think that I'm terrible at everything. No, no, that's just being Eeyore. In fact, often that's just kind of a reverse form of pride. Some of those who have lived with the greatest gospel understanding and the people who have rejoiced the greatest in their salvation have also been those who have, who have mourned the deepest over the sin that was in their own hearts. So believer, mourn and be humbled by the gospel and rejoice and be happy in the gospel. Christ did die so that we don't have to. Unbeliever, Make today the day of your salvation. Believer, I pray that you will rejoice in the good news that you have been taken from death and brought into life by the work of Jesus Christ.